you have to turn off all the fans. I know. I mean, you don't have to, but um, we do. And so it gets uh, hotter and hotter in the room. Yeah, I'm using it as sort of like a, a sort of propulsive force and just allowing my like inner sweaty pig to sort of dictate this whole thing. Inner sweaty pig. Um, <laughs> it's not far, It's not that far inner. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So um, uh, we're going to do the thing. Uh, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to say, for instance, I'm going to say, from Chicago, we are the Distractables. We are yes. joined today uh, by Andrew McAlpine and Ish Klein, as always. Uh, Andrew, can you introduce yourself for us? Sure. Uh, my name is Andy McAlpine. I'm a teacher. I'm a poet. I'm a gamer. I write about games sometimes. Uh, and I'm a member of the Connecticut River Valley Poets Theater. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you tell us the name of uh, some of your, you've got a couple chapbooks out. I do. I do. I have two chapbooks out. Uh, I have one called The Volunteer, which is out through the Burnside Review Press. And I have one called My Utmost Devotion, which is out uh, from Factory Hollow Press. Are they still available? I believe so. I do, oh. I do not think they are sold out. They are good, so you should go oh, get them. Oh, I love those. Oh, I thanks. Love it, those are such those are such great books. And uh, we're going to begin. Uh, well, you know what? Let's begin with Ish today. Ish, mm-hmm. what have you been distracted by this week? Well, um, I I started reading the Michelle Faber book, the book of strange new things. I, I'm only at like page eighty four, but I'm really captivated by it. Um, uh, that's what Andy recommended when 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 we were all at Gen Con. I'm excited oh, that you're reading the book. Thanks for recommending it. Could, uh, like could it. one of the both of you uh, introduce the book and talk a little bit about what it is? Sure. It's uh, I'll start and then Andy could pick up because I'm just at the beginning of it. It's about a very committed Christian man who has a partner who's kind of a grounding force. He's a very idealistic. He is, through rigorous testing, he becomes eligible to become an, like an intergalactic missionary. But he must leave his partner, B, behind. And he doesn't come across as a practical man. Like, he'll, he'll forget about things that are related to his body, and he admits to making broad conclusions with incomplete information. So Uh, is this one of those science fiction novels where you never get to see the alien? No, you get to see the alien, like, right off the bat, and it's troubling. They're, like, somewhat humanoid, but their face is described as two fetuses. Whoa. I know. (laughs) I love it already. I love it more than I thought I would, and I've never even read it. (laughs) <laughs> Andy, what is your impression of this book? Yeah, I was, I'm was i really fascinated by it because um, I love science fiction to begin with, but I also grew up in like a hyper-evangelical household where sort uh-huh. of mission, mission work was a big part of sort of the church I was a part of. And that's something that with a lot of folks I know now, that's kind of a strange, unfamiliar thing. And so seeing that 
element kind of dramatized and, and used for science fiction uh, felt really strange, but really freed. Andy, we grew up near some people like you. And um, <laughs> she, she was uh, an, an evangelical, but she also sold Tupperware. I guess that sort of ages me a little bit. But um, my mom, I've literally seen my mom hide behind the couch to avoid our next door neighbor. <laughs> she said, you answer the phone, tell, tell them that you're the only one in the house. And I'm going to hide behind this couch. And, and even then this missionary neighbor would talk to me for a very long time about Tupperware and Jesus. In that order? Probably starting with Tupperware. I think the strategy was to start with the Tupperware. And then, and then move to the real product. I I, I wouldn't want you to think that there was, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't want you to think that there was any like really clever uh, segue from Tupperware into Jesus. Like (laughs) there no, no like clever analogies were made. It's just, those were the two subjects you would be talking about when this woman came by. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I sort of enjoy those interactions now. Like whenever I, when I was on a plane recently, a guy handed me a sort of, you have a friend in Jesus pamphlet. And uh-huh. even though I think now now that I'm pretty far away from that stuff and I see the the weird problematic aspects of, of sort of evangelistic uh, work, I still feel for those dudes because I did a <laughs> bunch of it back in the day. And so I'm always I'm always happy to, to chat with them. I'm, I'm imagining a young and beardless Andrew McAlpine and I can see it. I'm sorry to say that I I visualize it pretty easily. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember going to a mall with a church group and being given these sort of pamphlets, and they're like, all right, go do it. And you think, well, gosh, I really don't want to do this thing, but I also really don't want these people to go to hell. Uh, so, oh, wow. right? Yeah. And, so, and so whenever somebody is kind of approaching me, whether it's for Tupperware or for Jesus, I can't help but, uh, I can't help but root for them a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Andy, I did not know that about you. But, but I, I've always had, um, well, I was raised Catholic, um, and uh, which had negative effects. But I've always really appreciated people who, because they cared about other people, were trying to save them from hell. You know what I mean? So my relationship to people who come and knock on the door to help out others, it's always been that I thought it was good of them to do that, you know, because they thought it was right and it didn't really bother me usually i would just kind of try to give my ideas about hell back and see like if we could come to an understanding just because of like wait a minute the 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 whole issue is how how could there be a hell you, you know what i mean right and uh i think they're sort of unprepared in many ways to sort of dive into those conversations. Uh, but it's nice, right? It's It could be a nice thing. Uh, I remember when I first moved to Nashville, I didn't know anybody. And I was sitting around um, on my porch of the place I was renting. And I saw Jehovah's Witnesses making their way up and down the block. And I was like, oh, yes, I'm going to get to talk to somebody. I'm going to have a conversation. And they walked right by my <laughs> house. They like, made eye contact with me and kept walking. I don't know if they thought, like, oh, not that dude. Like, that's not going to work. Or they're just like, for whatever reason, um, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't proselytized to. 
which has always felt a little bit insulted. <laughs> trying to imagine the nature of the eye contact. Yeah, I, maybe I would have been, maybe my eagerness was was off-putting. <laughs> I bet a lot of Mormons would talk with you. They, have, yeah, the Mormons will always talk to you, and you and you and there's no guesswork involved because they're always dressed so sharply, you know. Yeah, right. The short sleeve shirt with the tie. So yeah, it's I like the uniform. That I trust I trust something with a uniform more than something without. Uh, although that may be a problem. It could be a problem. <laughs> I was I was raised a slovenly agnostic. I'm always kind of fascinated by these stories of people being raised in very religious households. I understand it's most of America, but I just uh, the bug never hit my family. You're lucky in terms I'm I, I'm going to say something controversial but i i i really have negative feelings about catholicism it's mind control tactics and also i guess the morbid preoccupation with what could only be called cannibalism you know like one guy dies so everybody else could live like what the hell is that it's like so you're anti-Catholicism and anti-cannibalism is what we're, was what we're to believe. Yeah, I think that if you're if you're anti one, you'd have to be anti the other. Uh, what's the name of the communication device in the Faber book? The shoot. The shoot. You, you, you know, I thought I was really clever because you know in um in the dispossessed and Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed. It, it centers around the main character having invented faster than light communication called an ansible. And in a story I wrote once, everybody had these cell phones that were called handsible. <laughs> and I thought I gave myself a big pat on the back about that. So that's uh, Michael Faber and the name of the book again. The book of strange new things. Now, Andy, what's been distracting you lately? Uh, well, the first thing that's been distracting me over the last week or two has been 30 to 50 feral hogs. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, ver <laughs> my very favorite thing to happen to the Internet in a long time. Uh, uh -huh. Are you all familiar with the 30 to 50 feral hogs? I did. I had to do a little backtracking because it seemed like all of a sudden it was all over Twitter and I didn't understand it. Um, but my first guess, to my credit, was that it must have had something to do with a gun owner. And, and you are right. You're yeah. absolutely correct. Ish, are you familiar with this phenomenon? No, no I'm not familiar with it. Uh, so, I mean, to folks listening to this in the future, it's been a horrific couple weeks when it comes to sort of gun violence in the United States uh, with, you know, shootings going on in Ohio and Texas. And so it, everybody has been kind of, I think, rightfully upset about these things. And then this this particular Internet phenomenon seems to be the release valve that is kind of letting people get rid of that uh, energy to some degree. Uh, so it started off with a tweet by Jason Isbell, who's a you know an alt country star, who said something about the definition of assault weapons and talking about people not needing them. And then uh, this guy, uh, this this Twitter guy, posted. And I'll just read the tweet verbatim. Legit question for rural Americans. How do I kill the 30 to 50 feral hogs that run into my yard within three to five minutes while my small kids play? That's, that, was, that was the response. And for whatever reason, that blew up and briefly took over the internet, taking everyone's mind off the horrible truths of our reality for a short period of time. 
it does seem like a ridiculous thing. But it also, it, I have to say that my first impulse was everybody reacting to this seems like an like a like an urban person who the idea of a wild pig or even a domesticated pig is far outside of their their reference. You know, I, I there were a few people who went online like. Like, like, you know, like that kid who raises their hand in, 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 you know, elementary school to explain that usually 30 to 50 feral hogs don't go uh, prancing around people's yards. <laughs> but my, my first, the first thing I have to admit is that I have no idea. Like yeah, whether or absolutely. not you'd have to protect yourself against that many hogs or whether or not they go around in that sort of, like there's a whole host of things that people who live in cities don't understand about rural America. I, and I was relieved to learn that 30 to 50 hogs appearing in your yard within three to five <laughs> minutes is not something that rural Americans generally have to worry about. And yeah, I, and I could see how this could be a sort of weird, you know, city folk versus farm folk kind of thing. But it's just the, the strange specificity of yeah. 30 to 50 feral hogs yeah. Uh, three to five minutes is just something about it. I could just read it over and over again. And I have, I have done it. And, and unfortunately uh, all of the, all, every single witticism that could have been created about the 30 to 50 feral hogs had already been made by the time I even learned about it. So I have a question about that. Has anybody considered that he was deliberately leaving out information like Sure, it's his kids playing in a yard, but it's his 30 to 50 per feral pig yard. I think people did you know, have follow-up questions. Uh, I don't know if they were them? answered. I, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what his involvement has been uh, after, after starting this thing. Um, but it almost is sort of beside the point at this, you know, right now. Uh, I feel sure that one of the reactions was... It is the truth acknowledged that 30 to 50 wild feral hogs must be in want of a child or something <laughs> like that. That's correct. That is one of them. There is also, and I'll, you know, I'll read, I'll read one or two that I have them in front of me. Uh, this one is from Lee Harlan off of Twitter. And this, this is just to say, I have eaten the kids that were in the backyard. who <laughs> probably left for three to five minutes. Forgive me, I am 30 to 50 feral hogs. <laughs> and of course, there's the one where they're all wearing those weird uh, Mountie hats, and they're 30 to 50 feral PH hogs. That's right. And they're That's all right. singing happy. Yeah. It's all it's all good to me. It's all good. I, I could read these forever. Those are pretty good. Though it seemed to come like a tsunami and then disappear. Um, like uh, by the like time, 30 to 50 feral hogs, you might say. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, with <laughs> a, about three, it took about three to five minutes. People were already bitterly complaining about the about the meme by the time it uh, by the time it hit my ears. Like I literally went like I think I went to the doctor's office that day or something. Like so, people weren't talking about it, and then by the time I got out of a lengthy doctor session, people were already saying. Good night, all. I am tired of these 30 to 50 feral hogs. And I was just like, what is going on? Well, that I which hate, I hate Twitter. That which burns bright burns quickly. That's uh, all I can say. Well, uh, what have I been doing this week, you ask? I don't mind telling you. 
Uh, Ish and I have been watching the Netflix show Blown Away. It is a reality, competitive reality TV show uh, featuring glass blowers. Uh, I'm not totally accustomed to reality TV. I know it's like that sounds like the sort of admission people make, like, oh, I don't own a TV. You know, and I'm really not that type of person. I, I would watch reality TV. It's just I don't because there's always something else like attracting my attention. Sure. With that said, I, I really cannot get used to the format. Um, it just everybody on the show is like they're, they're, they're creating. I mean, it should be said that they're creating like the process of making like blowing glass is a fascinating process. And I would love to see a boring PBS documentary on the subject. But here we have people who are competing in glass blowing and, uh, you know, taken aside to dish at each other. And the only thing I can think is this this kind of show trains us all to be snitches. It's true. Absolutely. Talk to the camera about about the people you don't like. While the while the the foreman or whatever, this uh, this woman who has tenure somewhere as a glass blower, who had obviously has nothing, no classes to teach or nothing better to do with her time goes around inspecting all their work and asking them leading questions about whether or not they feel secure in their work. <laughs> Sounds like an MFA a little bit. <laughs> and it just, it, it, um, it, it is as fascinated as we were by it. I think I need to go another five or six years before I watch another reality TV show. What was pleasurable about it? The glass blowing. Yeah. <laughs> People using scissors to cut melted glass. That was pretty cool. You know what got me about the show? What? They they would they would start with this like you know dolly shot from far above of this, uh you know probably abandoned factory building that they've repurposed for the show. And as the dolly cranes into the building, there's this toot toot noise to indicate that we're in a factory. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just really silly to me i thought that was a very silly gesture i think it would be better if there was like a giant stained glass like you know window and the, the show starts with them like driving through it and like <laughs> that would be that would be amazing it's kind of the ultimate effect of the show actually is uh is uh if if this is uh, in any way a meditative practice it's kind of spoiled by the end of the show <laughs> hey listen everybody you want to you want to talk about the lake geneva convention that we let's all went to do it okay yes. let's take a break and then after the break we'll talk about gen con uh, for those uh, out there listening who are not heads about this sort of thing, we should talk about what the Lake Geneva Convention is. First of uh, all, does it happen at Lake Geneva? It absolutely con? does not. Okay, uh, but it's still called Gen Con for some reason. It still is. Branding It's hard to shake. I just want to make an issue of that. That's good. Let's start some beef with Gen Con. Yeah, it's... but... So, <laughs> so go ahead. Please explain what Gen Con is. Sure. So Gen Con is a convention uh, that it's centered around all sorts of tabletop gaming. 
it started off, I think, back in the olden days. Uh, I don't remember when that was, when it was up at Lake Geneva and sort of focused on Dungeons and Dragons and early war games, you know, the the Gygax era, that kind of stuff. If you um, pick up a first edition monster manual, you turn to the back and you'll see uh, an advertisement for Gen Con number three or something. Oh, like really? That. Yep. That's fantastic. Yeah. So anyway, it's uh, it's a place to go. It's a convention to go to uh, where you don't make any money and you don't make any professional connections. You lose money. Um, you go see exciting, exciting games. Um, you you talk to developers and designers and other sort of industry people. Um, if if like us, you're sort of immersed in the tabletop gaming world, it's kind of as much of a central event as there can be, at least in the states. When I first went to Gen Con about five years ago, I want to say there was something like fifty thousand people there, which was already pretty crowded and a lot. And I'm hearing now that the estimates for the number of people that showed up for this Gen Con that just happened was about 75,000 people. Uh, so a massive number of, of nerds uh, of all stripes uh, kind of gathering together to, you know, to buy stuff, but also to play stuff together and uh, sort of disseminate industry news and, and that kind of thing. Well, I have uh, an issue with this play stuff idea. Let, let's do it. <laughs> let's get into um, it. Uh, certainly, you. I, I found there were a lot of things to buy at at Gen Con, but um, every single thing that could have possibly interested me, there were there was to play, uh, was like sold out or filled uh, within months of the convention starting. It was one of my first dis- disappointments with the convention. It's true. I think that if you if you want to do more than just so, the center of the convention is this kind of giant exhibition hall where most major uh, board game publishers and distributors have booths set up where they're demoing games and selling games and you can, you know, see people and get them to sign stuff, et cetera. And that kind of makes up the meat of the convention in many ways, but there's also tons and tons of shows that you can go to and demos you can sign up for different thing session play sessions. You can sign up for that kind of thing talks, but Greg, like you were saying, I don't know if they can, I don't know if it's just people planning this thing so far in advance, but uh, once tickets go on sale, the, you know, tickets for these events just kind of disappear. And so we we didn't decide we were coming until just a couple of months ago. And by then, most of the things were sort of sold out, uh, which is kind of okay to me. We were only there for a couple days. And so I, I felt comfortable just sort of wandering around and taking in the sights. Um, but if I was going to go again in the future, I would definitely try to get on top of some of that other stuff before it was too late. Yeah, it was, uh, I, it was, it was fine. Nonetheless, uh, we, we do have, uh, we're about to get into our top three things that we actually liked about the convention. I just wanted to do a little kvetching at first because it's, uh, one of those supposedly fun things. I'm not so sure I'm going to do again. Yeah, I hear that. I, I think that it's not enough. I wouldn't go just to go. Um, I would go, you know, to see you guys again or to, you know, if I had something, if I was in some sort of professional capacity, I would go. It's like AWP, uh, which we really don't need to get into. Yeah. I might uh, hate that word more than Gen Con. Um, Unless you have a really good reason to go, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it just to go. Yeah. The, um, associated writing programs is what AWP is. It's, it's funny because I imagine some writers will be uh, listening to this and wondering what Gen Con is. And some gamers might be listening to this and wondering what AWP is. So, 
Uh, we do try to explain things as right, right. That's aliens smart. observing the planet, which I tend to do anyway. Um, uh, I think it goes without saying that probably, uh, you know, the high point of the whole experience was uh, we haven't been able to see Andy or Sarah Beth uh, in uh, months because we've moved away from Western Massachusetts. So getting to see friends, uh, particularly you guys, was was fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So definitely. that's not on my top three. That's just sort of a given. But I thought we should say it. Yeah, so my- number three thing you liked at uh, at. Um, Gen Con ish, would you like to start? Oh, um, the number three thing. Okay, uh, finding my way around the convention hall by my, by myself, I kind of felt like I was on this terrific mission. It it should not be uh, understated how crowded that place was. I think we can agree that the crowds are um are, are really really intense. Yeah, it's Definitely. it's intensely crowded, but most of the people proved to be very nice you know like i agree yeah we pointed out the t-shirts everybody you know those who weren't who didn't go full-on cosplay often would um deck themselves out in a t-shirt and these t-shirts all seem to have a pretty similar theme either they're uh some piece of intellectual property like you know marvel or something like that or they're uh they're a declaration that the person wearing the T-shirt is sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. Pardon my sarcasm. Or sarcasm is how I deal with stupid people like you. <laughs> or any number of other expressions about what is it with nerds and their their self-declaration of sarcasm? What is that? A defense mechanism, maybe? I guess so. And and being frustrated that other people don't know more, maybe. It's something I also see like on Facebook, particularly in the threads of people I don't know, but who know my family through like second and third removes. That's a tough crowd right there that you described. Yeah, We've all, right? all got them, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of this, like, Tweety Bird declaring himself a skeptic. <laughs> I feel like it's, well, it's weird, right? Because I feel like there is sort of, you know, like any kind of clothing choice, is this thing about self-identification. But what happens when you're at a place where there's 75,000 of you, you know? <laughs> could everyone could everyone be totally sarcastic with each other all the time, you know? Is it, uh, I don't know, the the concentration of a certain kind of, culture of which i'm definitely a part uh made for a pretty surreal experience for a while there was like a video like a like before like people like the really weird videos were like deep fakes of you know bill Hader turning into tom cruise which by the way have you seen that <laughs> no it sounds no. great <laughs> it's horrific it's it's horrific it's it's worse than you can imagine this is a segue of course but it's worse than you can imagine because you literally don't notice it Bill Hader is attempting to do like he's talking on a on a uh, I think it's David Letterman or something like before David Letterman went away. Um, he, he it's Bill Hader talking and talking about a time he met Tom Cruise and every time he does his Tom Cruise impression, which is pretty spot on, his face will subtly shift <laughs> to becoming Tom Cruise. And you have to watch it a second time to notice it. But once you see it, it's like 
uh, I can't describe it. It almost makes me want to vomit describing it. Um, oh why did I start mentioning that? Because there was <laughs> a, 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 a digital meme before that, maybe a few years before, in which the meme was you would create a perfect digital representation of, like, say, a middle finger and then send it rocketing through space and maybe create, like, a perfect digital rendition of Trump's face and the middle finger would hit Trump's face and then you would spam the middle finger so that it's a video of a thousand middle fingers falling endlessly through space. And that's what those T-shirts look like. <laughs> Like someone hit the spam button, you know? Yeah, no. Like copy and paste out of control. Something yeah, no, that's it's all true. It's all true. So that is that is just a way of saying that was issues number three. The crowd <laughs> and negotiating them. Yeah. Andy, what was your number three? Uh, so I'm sure you might talk about this more later, but uh, it was really fun meeting Martin Wallace. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, which is one of I know my favorite game designers, and maybe on your list as well. Uh, I don't know about how you how you two feel about most of his designs. We love, uh, we love him, of course. Uh, and, we, yeah. and we will indeed have more to say about him. I, I, I have a feeling it's if it's not Ish's number one, it's probably going to be mine. I'm going to change mine on the fly. Um, so we will talk about meeting Martin Wallace in a minute. So let me talk about my number three. And this is pretty pedestrian compared to your number threes, is the game War Cry. Now, Warcry is not something I picked up at Gen Con, and in, but it was announced at Gen Con, so I think it counts. And the thing I think I, I'm most proud of, we, we, we can all collectively uh, admit that we probably spent too much money to go to Gen Con, right? Oh, yes. Yep. Uh, we, we rented, a, and, and we didn't even go for the full experience, you know, like, like that was a little out of my budget, like renting uh we, we all got a, a airbnb and all of that stuff um uh and uh, among the games being sold Warcry, uh, as is the way of games workshop was among the most expensive things being sold there i got the entire run of the Warcry release uh for free by uh trading my painting skills I'm going to be painting a bunch of, I don't even want to explain what Blood Bowl is to people who don't know what it is, but it's something I don't collect, but I do paint because it is very popular. War Cry is a skirmish game, which um, uh, is the kind of skirmish game I've been waiting for Games Workshop to produce uh, for a long time. Uh, the rules are, they've cut out a lot of the really awful rules uh, that make playing anything by Games Workshop, a interminable slog, um, and uh, have created a set of rules that play in like 45 minutes to an hour, once you know them, uh, using uh, figures I've already painted uh, on uh, backdrops that are very beautiful. And um, I thoroughly recommend it to anybody, particularly anybody who can get all the stuff for free, like I did. Greg, I got a question for you about Warcraft. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, so... Games Workshop has put out a bunch of these sort of like boxed sort of skirmish systems, right? In the last few years, I'm thinking about yes. like Kill Team, uh, Warcry. Where do you see that fitting in comparison with these other ones? Is it the best so far? What do you think? 
each one that they've released has been an abject failure for one reason or another. And it mostly has to do with their business model. Uh, they re-released Necromunda a couple of years ago. The Necromunda is a game they used to do back in the 90s. One of their signature small team skirmish games. And uh, they released the rules in such a way as to maximize their profit and to uh, also maximize uh, confusion about getting the rule set down. Um, it, it, it was just like a lot of little rules that uh, amounted to very little. Uh, they did the same thing to Kill Team, which was supposed to be this um, just smaller version of Warhammer 40K. But they could not feeding, stop feeding at that trough, and they kept going in. And besides which, uh, it, it was the same rule set that they've been using for Warhammer 40K for, I don't know, for the last couple of years. And it's a very convoluted and complex set of rules. Warcry, on the other hand, uh, changes the entire formula literally changes the rules from the ground up so that instead of having a four-part resolution for every conflict, uh, there's simply one resolving dice roll. And uh, they've done it in such a way that it makes sense. Each character on the board is very flavorful and interesting. And uh, I, I really love it. Uh, with that said, it's incredibly expensive. And not only that, it's probably not going to appeal to their base, which is, are mostly teenagers who are practicing becoming the kind of people who argue about menu prices at, uh, at uh, you know, at the Sizzler. <laughs> Warcry is actually a game instead of a marketing technique. And it's, it's very good. There's no reason why anyone should believe me uh, because the buy-in for it is incredibly high, but it, it, it really is the best rule set they've ever produced. And um, I have enough of it now that maybe I'll never have to collect anything from uh, Games Workshop ever again. And I just want to reiterate one more time, I was able to get this because I negotiated a free copy of the base set and a bunch of other terrain. And I won a painting competition at my local game store and got $100 in credit and got a couple more things. So I never had to pay one penny for any of it. With that in mind, I recommend it absolutely. Right on. But otherwise it would cost you like $400, and how could that possibly ever be worth it? Ish, have you played this one yet with Greg? Yeah, I've played it, and I, and I will play it again. Uh, I really like it. Wait, wait, by the way, I, I usually don't play war games because I'm so itching to blow someone away. I, I, I do it as more of a puzzle. Honestly, I if I didn't if I wasn't into Games Workshop stuff, and if it weren't like this hobby that has sort of taken over my life and um and become like a vocation for me, I I I would never recommend anything from Games Workshop. The rules are generally terrible, and the uh, product is very expensive. Um, okay, so number two ish, what was your number two thing that you took away from Gen Con? This this and the other one are tied for number one for me, but at the Airbnb when we played Root late at night, like almost until midnight or whatever it was, like we 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 stayed up late playing Root. That for was, our friends who don't play games, could you describe Root for us? Adorable woodland animals are trying to occupy 
their niches in the forest and they will win if they get uh, 30 points. If they're the first little animal to make it to 30 points, they'll win. And each one has its own sort of weird set of preconditions by which they play the game and win the game. And the author uh, has a stated preference for very difficult and very heady war games and often uh, presents uh, his design choices in Foucauldian terms. Like he'll, he'll talk about um, biopolitics and things like that when talking about his game. So in spite of the fact that there's these little cute woodland creatures with Robin Hood outfits on uh, <laughs> fighting each other in a beautiful uh, woodland area, in fact, there's some real meaty political choices happening when you play Root. Andy, I know it's a favorite of yours as well. Yeah, it's a wonderful game. I love uh, Cole Worley, the designer. Um, it does really cool stuff. Uh, but I'm going to agree with Ish. It was so much fun just playing after a day of just like sort of being bombarded by advertisements and new things and just a sort of constant stimulation to just go back to the Airbnb and just play some games with each other was really great. It was really great. Um I, I love that game. I, I mean, we could we could have a whole conversation about Root, which I don't think we should have. But um, it, it was really nice to play a, a good game that we all knew after being uh-huh. bombarded by advertisements for stuff that I have to admit, 75% of all the stuff we saw on the showroom floor looked like crap. Yeah, yeah, it's, just, it's a lot. It's, a, it's, it's just a, real... a lot of... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's just... it's a time in the board game industry where there's just a glut of new stuff coming out and trying to make heads or tails out of it is, is a weird kind of activity, but, and then, and there's so much of it that just won't even doesn't make the cut at all. Um, And it's all, and and the, and the, and the, and the point of each idea they're presenting you with is like an explicitly bad one. Like, did you like this simple card game that you played last year? Well, now you can turn it into a campaign that takes 40 hours, (laughs) right? Or um, do you remember this one mechanic you liked in a game that perfectly fit it's, uh, you know, the story it was trying to tell? Well, now we have it in space for some reason. Yeah. There's just a lot of iterative, like uncreative ideas done by people who don't have any cultural reference for anything (laughs) like you know like like ideas presented by people who simply don't read harsh i know (laughs) but i I don't mean to be a a jerk a lot about gen con was shocking to me uh it was and it's fun to be shocked okay let's continue onward andy what was your number two so for my number two, I'm going to talk about a specific game, um, which was Detective City of Angels, uh-huh. which I only have. I have to I have to give props to Greg and Ish because I was standing in the will call line while these were quickly selling out, and they uh, like true heroes went and, and picked up the game for me before I even had my badge. But a little a little background. This is a, a game that started off as a Kickstarter, and uh, I you know if you don't know anything about board games, that's often the way that new board games are funded these days. And for this particular Kickstarter, if you didn't get in on it, there was no retail release. And so uh, I heard great things about this game. I did not Kickstart it. And so um, I had to either wait 
until they did another campaign in the future, or they had just a few copies for sale at this con. Um, so I, you know, was excited about getting that and really glad I did. I've gotten to play it a couple times since, and uh, I'm always on the hunt for a really good detective game, which is a, a challenging thing for board games to do. And I, I think I'm prepared to say that Detective City of Angels is my favorite one I've ever played. Um, wow. It's really, really good. How many um, plays have you got in? I've got two plays so far. I did one play just solo, playing the first oh. case myself, which is supported. And then I did a second play just head to head. Uh, with me and a friend, uh, who Jed, who's actually, you know, a, a guest on this show earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly, yeah. So it's, unlike unlike many detective games, which I like a lot, like Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective is a fun, a sort of collaborative paragraph reading game. Detective, a modern crime board game is really similar. This one kind of breaks the mold and uh, and aims for, to recreate the detective experience, not just through sort of reams of hard-boiled text, uh, but through really smart, interesting decisions you have to make during interrogations, uh, the way you sort of piece this case together from its component parts. It's really, it, it feels really good to play. It was a fascinating, because it it's a great big box, and it's got a lot of moving parts, right? It does, and there's a lot in the box. There's nine cases in the box. There's all these diff big old map, all these different books. But at heart, the actual gameplay is really simple. You search suspects, you search locations, and you ask questions. And that's essentially it. But what does separate this game from other kind of similar games is that there's this... Not all the characters are playing detectives. In the, in the game as it's meant to be played, one person plays the chisel, uh, who is kind of a to sort of put it in Dungeons and Dragons terminology, kind of a, a dungeon master. They're, they're kind of running the case and working okay. against the detectives. And even though they don't necessarily have a lot to do, most of their job consists of choosing the way that different suspects respond to different questions for the detectives. Having that sort of active mind working against you is really, really good for the sense that you are trying to put together uh, trying to figure out uh, what, who's lying, who's telling the truth, trying to put together a narrative of what actually happened, that having that little sort of push of opposition makes all the difference when it comes to kind of creating that feeling of being in a really good mystery. I've always dreamed of having a good, like, Philip Marlowe game engine. You know what I mean? Like, a, yeah. like something that puts you into that mindset. And I, I, I've been disappointed by games that have attempted to. So I was really really intrigued by detective uh i wish i was there to play it with you yeah and i so i'm not i don't want to give it a sort of uncritical glowing praise i've only played the first case i've played it twice now and it's it's a very simple case but even even it just it's bare, like barest kind of uh form it's really enjoyable and so i'm very much excited to see how the cases are going to evolve what the game system is going to do with them it's it's kind of an expensive game. It's I think it's ninety dollars, which may be the most I've ever paid for a board game. But I feel really happy with with my purchase. So now, have you ever played a game uh, by Martin Wallace called PI? No, I have not. It it came out probably about three or four years ago, and I, I would wonder I would wonder how this game stacks up to that game, considering that the Martin Wallace game is one of these Martin Wallace sort of enterprises that really just takes about an hour to play 
um, and features a pretty simple deductive mechanism where by uh, each person is seeding a few things out on the board. And what you're doing is you're sending detectives to these places, these different, you know, colorfully named locations like the Continental Club and asking um, one of two different types of questions, one a limited question and another one more exhaustive. Uh, that person can basically put one of their discs down on that space to tell you how close you are. It's, it's essentially a game of um, am I getting hot, you know, or am I getting cold? It, it, it's interesting. It, it, it probably doesn't have the narrative satisfactions of, uh, of this bigger game that you're describing, but it's one I would definitely recommend trying out. That Martin Wallace, he's always, he's always doing something interesting. That sounds yeah. really cool. And, and you, you might want to try, I mean, because it did not get, um, it, it didn't get very excited reviews on Board Game Geek, which is like the one location where you can go to find a, uh, a review of an obscure game. But uh, it does, you know, like a lot of Martin Wallace things, it, you know, it's compared to his best work and his best work is very, very good. So people are. Uh, um, you know, a little disappointed by it, but he has this whole design space that he works in, uh, where, um, I'm trying to perform a function within this amount of time. And it's not maybe the most brilliant thing you're ever going to play, but it does what it says it's going to do. And I think PI fits into that category. Very cool. Uh, my number three is Watergate by Matthias Kramer. And it is a game that uh, is very inexpensive. It just costs $30. It is kind of based on the card-driven mechanism that uh, fuels Twilight Struggle. It's really just a two-person game where one person has a handful of cards and another person has a handful of cards. And each card represents a discrete moment of history. And so you essentially, together competitively play back in uh, scrambled order the events of history, roughly speaking at about the times they happened. And so in Watergate, you are one person plays Nixon and weird sidebar. This is not the first time either Ish or I have played Nixon in a board game. <laughs> yeah, there's that election of 1962, right? In 1960, yeah. The, oh, um, right. <laughs> so... Uh, so it, 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 we get to revisit the experience of playing Nixon in a game, which is like a really interesting thing to do because, of course, I can't think of a better challenge than to be Nixon in 1973 or whatever. Like, that's a pretty interesting game to try to play. And, in fact, it is one that, like, the sort of glittering-eyed rats who populate conservative corners have actually been doing for the last 50 years just replaying the nixon and trying to make it right again and now um, you can you can give it the old college try it, and then your opponent is of course uh, called the editor um who isn't necessarily ben bradley or 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 uh you know uh woodward and bernstein but these are cards that you can play so for instance if if you try to play g gordon liddy on your turn uh, as nixon um, your opponent may pull out Ben Bradley and uh, block Liddy from doing whatever nefarious shit he's trying to do. It's great. 
Um, and in fact, I get a little tired of the formula. It's been reiterated. The Twilight Struggle handful of cards mechanism uh, has been reiterated a few times. There's a Cuban Missile Crisis version, and there's the 1960, The Making of a President, which we've talked about, and several other like election games, um, all of which are diminishing returns because it's really just a matter of knowing the decks, knowing when the cards in the decks are most likely to come out and shoring up with limited information what you can do so as to mitigate some of the losses you know are coming down the line. Watergate is done with just 40 cards, 20 cards per person. And those cards are very discreet in their use and almost more than half of them are removed from the game. And this makes a very distinct um, difference because each card that you remove, uh, had, you know, each card in these games has a dual use. And among the best cards are ones that get removed from the game, but which also give you the most benefit. So in that discrete um, design space, you really are giving up quite a lot. Um, when, you know, you have a deck full of 50 cards and you eliminate one for its larger benefit it's not that big a deal because you probably weren't ever going to see it again but in watergate you'll probably cycle through your deck about three or four times in the 45 minutes it takes to play and so it's an enormous loss to use a card in that way and like i say this makes all the difference it turns it into this tight decision space that's uh, really very stressful and very engaging. Ish and I have played it like 10 times now since we brought it home. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's really great. And it's one I'm afraid will be a little overlooked because there are so many other games in this design, in this, you know, in this category. Um, but it's inexpensive. It plays very quickly. And it, to my mind, it's more satisfying to play than Twilight Struggle is at three hours long or whatever. Ish, what do you think of this game? I love Watergate. Uh, I mean, I love the game Watergate. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to win as the journalists. Um, the game favors Nixon just because he has power and very ruthless people, conspirators. Nixon has a very simple task to uh, achieve. He has to take Keep all the momentum. momentum. He has to keep the momentum marker on his side, like he has to win momentum five times. That's all he yeah. needs to do and make sure that the journalists don't connect to him. It's there's a map of a board and then there are evidence, evidence pieces that you pin to it. And all so you will get like, oh, can we make a connection with Mike McCord to him, you know, can we make the Mike McCord connection? Can we make the John Dean, et cetera, et cetera? But, the, but Nixon has the ability to eliminate informants as well as, like, block possible connection areas. And by eliminate informants, that means you, you're paying them off. So, so you know, John Dean, you know, if you get to him first, you can actually pay him off and keep him from talking, uh, you know, to the Senate subcommittee. And that's oh, that's thing. cool. Yeah, um, it's great. It's a really great game. Ish, what was your number one thing tied with Root uh, that you experienced at Gen Con? Uh, playing Runestone with Martin Wallace. 
Oh yeah. Like, that was well, my number one thing too. So there you have it. Maybe we should talk about the two different elements of this, actually meeting and playing a game with Martin Wallace and the game itself. Good idea. He was a very warm and personable person. The enthusiasm he had for his new game was, was transferred over to us. It was, um, he was really, really happy to be playing this game. Every time he explained one of the rules, he explained its logic uh, in the way that a kid would explain the logic of a new rule. Like, he was just really excited to be to see people playing his game in front of him. And uh, like we said, he's the designer of Brass. He's the designer of Steam and Age of Steam and Age of Industry. He's the designer of um, A Few Acres of Snow. He's the designer of a truly bizarre game called A Study in Emerald about a, a Victorian war against Cthuloid monsters featuring um, literal anarchists of the era like Emma Goldman, uh, as well as Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, and uh, it's a really, really nuts game. He, he, I think we've all expressed at some point in this podcast the fact that he's one of our favorite designers, and in fact he is. So it was a, it was a, it was a big honor to meet him, and it was very strange to see that, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't really have space in Gen Con. He had a table for one hour, like every day that he would meet people to test out his new game. And at that time we were, we and two other people were the only people who showed up to play it. Yeah. You'd think he'd have like people around the block. Were you surprised Andy? What were you expecting when you heard that Martin Wallace was presenting one of his new games? Yeah, I definitely expected a crowd of some sort. Uh, And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just so jam packed or people didn't know about it. Um, but the sort of just his availability was was pretty cool to me. Um, so Gen Con is right. It kind of builds itself as a celebration of gaming and it tries to put on this really big spectacle. But at the end of the day, these are some, you know, uh, it's a sort of strange and nerdy and sort of insular kind of thing to do. And uh, even though this is sort of a personality driven medium with these sort of celebrity designers uh, being able to just see. You know, I think one of the greatest game designers that has ever lived. Uh, can we say that? We could say that probably. We could say uh, we could say that with some qualifications. Yeah, we we could we could say that's that's probably true. Um, just see him just like work through a thing in his like extremely practical footwear and just like very friendly <laughs> and approachable. Um, I don't know if uh, people talk about community building a lot in this sort of gaming space, but just being able to like chat with a guy who made some of your favorite stuff is just a, a really fun friendly thing to do yeah yeah definitely so meeting him uh was was a a thrill now the game itself is an area control game uh and it's one that uh actually reminds me a lot of an earlier design of his called mythotopia Uh, i think the big difference here is that uh instead of a deck of cards you have a bunch of bakelite pieces uh, each of which have uh, multiple uses. They act as a form of currency. Uh, they act as actual units that go out on the board. Um, and uh, they also pay for themselves in a 
in a way that uh, reminds me of like Race for the Galaxy or, or any number of other games where the cards you're playing to the table um, are can also be used to pay for the card. So there will be some cards you discard in order to play one very important one to the table. Um, so too do these tiles work that way. And the reason the game is called Runestones is because uh, it's supposed to do all of this work um, using only these little Bakelite pieces, which I'm sure will be very beautiful. We played a prototype copy with 3D printed pieces, which were really fun to use uh, regardless. And I thought it was a neat game. I mean, it's certainly one that's in progress, so I wouldn't want to, um, you know, put it, you know, compare it to his other games as he's still working on them. Uh, But they uh, each faction seemed very flavorful. They were you know, pretty generic fantasy archetype. One person played the dragon, somebody else would play giants, somebody else would play the humans, ish, you get the chance to play humans. I play giants. And, you know, for me, I don't get tired of these tropes, particularly when they're abstracted into games, because it's just like after a while saying that you're a giant or an elf or a dwarf or something is like saying that you played kings or queens or jacks you know like there's just ranking there's a way these cards are supposed to be used and it's always interesting in a abstract you know 52 card game to see how these elements are recombined in the same way when someone's creating a thematic fantasy game i'm never that interested in the author of the game uh, coming up with whole new fantasy archetypes because they always wanted to write a novel but never had the time. I'm perfectly happy with them using the well-worn Tolkienian archetypes as long as they can translate them in interesting ways in the game. Martin Wallace, I think, succeeded at this. Um, I think he probably has some iterations to go, however, before it becomes a game that's really exciting to play. It felt like... uh, you know, in this prototype, a little loose in some places. Uh, Ish, what was your impression of the game? I wanted to play it again. Well, we never finished the game for one thing because um, we we left because Martin had an appointment at 4 p.m. So we didn't get to finish it. So my impression is incomplete. I would have loved to play it longer and another time. Uh, I would have loved to play it again and again just to get a sense of like, well, do I develop early or is development slow for the humans? And where do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a great time playing it. What was your impression like, Andy? Yeah, so I, I just kind of listened to to Martin explain the game a bit and watched you all play a few turns and then went to go find uh, Sarah Beth. But this thing kind of happened that always happens with his games. When you're going rule by rule, you're like, huh, weird, weird weird and then all of a sudden i get it you know and it was exciting to sort of experience that in real time but i was like what's this about what's this about okay i get it and uh that was a a cool intellectual experience um so yeah i i'm excited about it i would love to play it when it you know finally comes out andy what's your favorite martin wallace game uh i love a study in emerald and I love London. Those are probably my two favorite. Oh yeah, London is great. You you basically play 400 years of uh, of the history of London while managing poverty as well as wealth. You do sort of play a landlord in it. So 
you know, your mileage may vary, but it, that is one of my favorites as well. In fact, talking about these games, I just kind of want to pull them out and play them again. Totally. Andy, what was the, your favorite thing at Gen Con? So my favorite thing was interesting because we didn't really talk about it much, but uh, one of our favorite games that we've played together a bunch of times, so that's always kind of an event, is Dune, which is the the board game based on the, the book. It's not based on the movie, right? It, they base it on the book. And it's 40 years old now. It's a 40-year-old yeah. game that uh, is kind of passed around like a secret handshake uh, for people who are excited about games. It's this kind of wild affair that really benefits from having six people, um, you know, play for a couple hours. Uh, and the reason it's passed around like a like a secret handshake is because the Herbert estate have always been assholes about allowing people to reprint the game. Absolutely. And yeah. so it's existed in different forms. And I think the most common form, like the, you know, I know, Greg, you made your own copy. Uh, yeah. And then I know other people who've made their own copies and I guess, you know, now uh, Gale Force 9, which is a board game company I, I like quite a bit, got the rights finally to, to print it again after 40 years. Seeing that all over the con, seeing it set up on all these different tables and seeing people excited about it was a really fun thing. And that kind of in some ways, you know, it's hard to say, like, what's the what are the hot games? But one of the games that it seemed like people were the most excited about was this game that is you know 40 years old and that but it's just wonderful and, and remains wonderful as a labor of love uh, a person known only as Ilya online recreated all the parts of the dune game uh using this really nice art deco um sort of ochre palette uh, it's a really beautiful set of pieces and i was really happy to see that gale forest nine was just using the Ilya art rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. It really is the best illustration of those game pieces I've ever seen. Totally. I mean, considering that the old Avalon Hill is a hideously ugly thing, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. I was looking at the uh, game rules, and I'm not sure about them because it includes a lot of the weird game rules that people have adopted over time, which I find a little too complex. There's an argument to be made that the economy of the game as written is a little sluggish. And I, I hate, I hate a rule set that says, Oh, well you can try it if you're not satisfied with the game, because it just, it simply leads to questions that I don't think the game supports. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, it is interesting. Yeah, so I, I, I have some reservations about how it will turn out, but it's interesting watching these things that have kind of floated with no official version for a really long time um, try to get hammered out into some sort of canonical thing. It kind of reminded me of when the Star Wars movies were, the, the newish ones were coming out. Everyone had to decide suddenly what counted and what didn't, or like <laughs> in early early Christendom, like all those councils. Uh, uh -huh. Uh -huh. that decided, hey, what's, you know, which one of these books gets gets included in the Bible, which doesn't? And so will this, you know, replace the sort of versions that we've honed over the years? Maybe not, but I'm excited to see what it's going to look like in the in the sort of mainstream. So uh, Dune from Gale Force 9, which is just coming out within the next month, I think. I think so. Ish, would you recommend Gen Con to anybody curious about it? You know, I would. Also, the cosplay is really cool. There are lots of neat costumes, which we should have mentioned, because it's one of the best things about the whole experience. Definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, second question ish. Which is better, AWP or Gen Con? <laughs> I've had very good experiences at AWP, even when they've been among bad experiences. Uh, I, I, they're, they're neck and neck. Me with no ego. If I'm if I'm leaving my ego out of it, I say Gen Con. Okay. That's better. But with my ego and under the condition that I have a reading. Okay, with my ego and a reading, I guess I'd like AWP because that would make me feel good about myself, you know. Andy, <laughs> what about you? Would you recommend uh, the a Gen Con experience just boldly? I wouldn't recommend it just on its own. Uh, I don't think that I would go back just on my own, but as a thing to to do with people you like, absolutely. What do you think about the comparison, AWP versus Gen Con? Oh, I would I would choose Gen Con every single time. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I, I for 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 anybody who's like listening to this and thinking, oh my god, that sounds like a horrible thing. You know, uh, you crammed in with a bunch of nerds. Uh, who all have a singular interest in some obscure topic uh, and who are slightly competitive with one another, well, AWP is much worse. <laughs> um, and ultimately, I think, winds up costing just as much, if not more, money. Like, the problem is, conventions generally, aren't you supposed to go there and make money? Isn't that the traditional point of a convention? Like, a bunch of vinyl siding salesmen all show up and make deals and come back richer well, uh, people share their information yeah as a vinyl siding fan i try to go every year <laughs> just to keep uh, on the distractables, we talk about things that have been distracting us, uh, but we are all uh, pretty exclusively writers, and so we try to end the podcast uh, having done something productive and sharing it. Andy, have you written anything recently that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna share a poem I wrote called Robot. Wonderful. Okay, this is called Robot, and it's dedicated to all those Gen Con attendees robot i fucking hate this stop and shop robot i swear he's following me around waiting for me to drop this jar of pickled pepper rings so he can narc to his superiors can't he see that i'm his superior pitiful life form i'll urge to roll urge to report urge to bang into the aisles dislodging fig newtons and oreos pitiful pitiful i'm thinking about quitting poetry and trying to market something other than myself. Crispy wafer, delicious cream filling, perfect for nibbling as the waters rise. I'm walking on the sidewalk, texting Jed, thinking about the little scuffs I leave with each step. I've read that Jane monks won't walk outside during the rainy season, and that they wear cloths over their mouths so they don't inhale something alive. I've read an eye for an eye for an eye for an eye for an eye. My vision funnels through this little slit between drooping lids, wherein the borders of fixed forms begin to soften. The better to stumble into a rogue parking meter. I've read no loitering. I've read all sales are final. I've read watch for crossings. Yield. Stop. I like that ending. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us, Andy. I hope you do it again. Thank you. I'm happy to be a distractable. This was so much fun. Yeah.
My whole editing process is very uh, primitive. I just like literally put artificial silences in there so I can visually see the, and I'm ruining it by talking about it. So hold on. <laughs>